This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're listening to Radio Lab from Public Radio WNYC and NPR. For Steve Strogatz, a mathematician who we sometimes have on the show, it all started with a pendulum. He was sitting in math class. Our teacher handed us a little toy pendulum. Basically just a little device with a ball on the end of a string. That was retractable. That is, you could change the length of the string. Like an old telescope, you know, on, that the pirate stretches out a spyglass, click, click, click. You could make it longer in discrete clicks. And then the teacher gave us a stopwatch and said, I want you to time how long it takes for this pendulum to swing back and forth 10 times. Okay, so I do the experiment. 10 swings. I record how, how many seconds it took. Then he says, now make the pendulum a little bit longer, one click longer. Click. Do it again. And as you might expect, since now the string is longer, it takes a bit more time. To make the 10 swings. And I write down the number. Click. Do it again. Click. Do it again. And I do this five or six times, dutifully plotting the, the results on graph paper, which is what the experiment was really supposed to teach us, how to use graph paper. So he's clicking, measuring, making a little dot. Click, measure, dot. Click, measure, dot. Soon the thing is filled with dots, and that is when he noticed something. This spooky thing was happening, which is that the dots were falling on an arc, on a curve. They weren't on a straight line. They fell on a particular curve, and I noticed that this curve was a curve I had seen before because I had just learned about it in algebra class, and it's called a parabola. And this really gave me the creeps. I had a sort of feeling of the hairs on the back of my neck standing up because it was as if this inanimate thing, this pendulum, knew algebra. (laughs) (laughs) My 13-year-old mind couldn't understand that. How could could this thing swinging back and forth know something about parabolas, or or how could that be built in? Then an even creepier thought occurred to him. Wait a second. This parabola on my paper, which is the same one as the math book, is also out in the world. It's the, the shape that water makes coming out of a water fountain. It's also the shape of, you know, when you shoot a rocket into the sky and it slowly descends. It's that. It was in that moment that I suddenly understood what people mean when they say there's a law of nature. Do you remember what it was that made your hair stand on end? Was it that you had peeked in and discovered a secret? Or that you just simply found the right answer? Much closer to the first thing you said, that there was this sort of veil over reality, a hidden universe that you couldn't see unless you knew math. It really felt like being let into some sort of secret society. And that wasn't so much the point. I mean, it's not like I cared about being in this priesthood. It, it was. It's a very intimate, personal thing, this feeling of wonder, of a sense of living in an incomprehensible and beautiful universe. 
but, but partly yes. comprehensible. That's the beauty of it. I mean, if you're a lobster, you don't have this thought, right? A lobster doesn't get to think about the laws of nature. And so I've often thought to myself that it's a blessing that we live in a certain window of intelligence, that if we were infinitely smart, godlike, we'd have such powerful brains, we could see every implication of everything. So math wouldn't be fun for a, a, a being that's too smart. And of course, for the lobster that's not smart enough, math is no fun for them either. <laughs> it's in this intermediate window where math and science become uh, something to rejoice in. Today's program is about a kind of search. A search for order. For patterns. Hidden truth. Hidden truth. And it's about the scientists who go out looking for those things and sometimes find them. Whoa, what's that? And sometimes don't. I felt humiliated. I felt stupid. Question is, what makes these people tick? And we're calling this show... Why do I love the fly that's eating my brain? That'll make sense later. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krolwich. This is Radiolab. Okay, you ready? Yeah. Off we go. I think there's always been a desire to somehow categorize and classify the world around us. Remember it? And when you were in, I don't know when it would be, like in eighth grade, when they, when the teacher comes in in general science and he pulls down the periodic table of elements? Remember oh, yeah, that? sure. I mean, that was one of the first times where I was like, yeah, I don't want to be a scientist. It's not for me. <laughs> but for kids who love this kind of thing, take Oliver Sacks, for example. Yeah, you should come in. I should come in? Okay. Yeah, so a couple of years ago, we had went to talk to Oliver Sacks about something. Well, it was actually mostly you that was going to talk to him, and I was just tagging along for the hell of it. Yep. And for some reason, we ended up in his bathroom. I tend to read a little bit in the toilet. Maybe to look at a book or something? He seems to have facts and figures in his as well. There's a lot of us in there. I'm sorry. Sorry. And that's when uh, we noticed... Well, you have the periodic chart in the bathroom. In every, in every bathroom. <laughs> but he had a periodic table of the elements on the wall in the bathroom. So here we thought, wow, how funny periodic table in the bathroom. But then he said, well, you know, if you go out into the couch, you'll see some cushions embroidered with the periodic table. And then he took us to his bedroom. Although I don't usually take people into my bedroom. Oh, we'll come. Where he showed us his periodic table comforter. I tend to sleep here right under tungsten. But the cool part was when he took us to the living room where he had this... Uh, Describe what isn't before us here. It looks um, like an altar. It's like a little, a little dictionary stand on top of which was a beautiful mahogany box. A fine wooden box. About the size of a backgammon set. Called Periodic Table of the Elements. It is a very fine wooden box. Uh, and, and if you care to open it, right, it's, 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 uh, it's made of some sort of fine wood. It comes from Russia. It does. All right. And is there a trick to opening this? Okay, we've all seen the periodic table, you know, on a chart. But in Oliver's box, there, there were the actual elements. Oh, these are all these. We have here like ninety some odd little, uh, little tubes, little samples, little teeny vials of almost all the elements: silver, arsenic, bismuth, cobalt, oxygen, copper, hydrogen, phosphorus, iron, manganese, mercury, nitrogen, molybdenum, gold. Since I'm, for example, having my 72nd birthday tomorrow, yes. and element 72 is hafnium, there is a little hafnium. Um, Two little rocks. 
Here, here's what here's what they sound like if you rattle them. I, I, I have coming to me, I hope it arrives today, an ingot of hafnium, which will be very much more satisfying. <laughs> um, what would you do with an ingot that you can't do with the two little pebbles? Uh, I'll be able to hold it in my hand. My first love of chemistry had to do with the, the sensuous. So here, one of the liquid elements, bromine. I, I loved the colors, the brown. Faintly brown, fluidy thing. Um, yeah. The luster, pale golden mercury. Very, very beautiful. The the physical properties. Well, this is a gas trapped in little vials? Yes. Uh, one, one wouldn't want to drop that. Why not? Uh, well, it's, it's not good to breathe. Can I just jump in here for a second? Sure. Because um, I, I, I really need to jump in. <laughs> but the thing that's really crazy about that box, and this you don't get from uh, from looking at a periodic chart on the wall, is that all those elements? Lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon, nitrogen. That's like the world. I mean, everything that we can see and perceive, this table right here, the teeth in my mouth, the sky, the ocean, the mountains, it's all made of some combination of elements from that box. And the box itself gives it all a deep, deep order. I had noticed myself, one can't help noticing, that the elements are organized in a very special sort of way. For example... May I excuse you for a moment? I, I, I have managed to not notice. I find it a little odd that you could organize them at all. I, I don't even know how to begin the, the process of figuring out they're okay. related in some um, way. Well, well, then, then you are sort of um, recapitulating what, you know, what, what everyone felt in the, in the early days. Of course, in the really early days, people thought there were just four elements. The ancient notion of elements uh, took the form of earth, air, fire, and water basically the thought that the whole world could be composed of these four ingredients in different ways. But then in the 18th century, we're skipping ahead a bit, chemists began to break things down into uh, smaller pieces, like wind became... Gases like oxygen and hydrogen and nitrogen. And earth got divided up into things like... Sulfur, phosphorus, iron. By the way, in order to do this kind of investigating, do you have to boil and pull and tug and fry and steam and do things like that? All of the above. So to fast forward, after enough of this boiling and tugging and frying and steaming, uh-huh. chemists got all the way down to the root of it, which was the atom. That's really what an element is. It's a particular kind of atom. The problem was, though, when chemists began to start measuring these atoms, they found that they were all different sizes and types. Like one would be heavy, another would be light third one would be really friendly, likes to link up with other atoms, whereas the fourth would be a loner. And they would come in combinations like heavy, friendly, heavy, shy, light, friendly, light, shy. What was the pattern? That was the question. Could they fit all of these differences and similarities into one big schema? Since we mentioned his name, let me here show you a picture of the... um, um, Here's where we get to Oliver's hero. The Siberian bigamist. Uh, as he was called. That would be Dmitry Mendeleev. The great Mendeleev whom we will talk about. Oliver has a black and white picture of him on uh, his kitchen cabinet. Uh, this man is not going to win any any beauty contest. Um, no, no, no he, uh, he looks like a mixture between uh, Rasputin and... Um, uh, who do I mean? Well, you mean he has a big nose, a shaggy, slightly unkempt white beard, a mustache that goes all over the place, piercing eyes, thick eyebrows and looks like he's in a hunchback position. Generally, if you met him on the sidewalk, you'd probably want to walk around him. 
<laughs> yeah, he didn't believe in wasting time going to a barber. Well, let me just ask you, as to the degree of your passion, when you look at this man, do you think he's a beautiful-looking guy, or do you see what I see? Um, I think Mendeleev had a beautiful mind. Okay, in 1860, uh, around 1860, there were trains going all over Russia, and Mendeleev could afford to take trains. He was often on enormous journeys, and to while away the time, since he couldn't do chemical experiments or whatever, he would take playing cards with the name of various elements, their chemical and physical properties, and he would play what he called chemical solitaire. Sorting them for likeness or sorting uh, them? I'm afraid I, 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 I don't know the details. But you know what we can imagine, right? Sure. So let's just say he's there sitting there on the train, he's looking out the window, he sees trees made of carbon. Carbon. A lake made of hydrogen and oxygen. Hydrogen, oxygen. Behind that, a mountain. Mountains, yeah. Made of silica. Silicon. And he's shuffling their properties and their atomic weights in his mind. Wondering. How do these things go together? What's, what's the, the pattern? pattern? And he's shuffling. I'm shuffling. 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 And he did this for years. Until one night. This we think is true. In February of 1869, he is said to have had a dream. In his dream, all the atoms of all the elements of all the world, the fat ones, the small ones, the dense ones, the heavy ones, the friendly ones, the shy ones, they all began to dance in his mind. And then they snapped into a grid. He awoke with a vision of the periodic table. This is one of those <laughs> dreams, which he then wrote on the back of an envelope. The thing about what he wrote on the back of that envelope is that it starts out so simply. Left to right, the atoms just get heavier and heavier and heavier. Heavier, heavier, heavier. But every so often, and this is what he intuited in his dream, is that while they're getting heavier, their other traits, like whether they're shy or magnetic or whatever, those traits oh. repeat. Periodically change back again. And every time they do, we start a new row. The properties repeat again. <laughs> Out of this simple repeating structure, Very nice. hush, Mendeleev, you get a table that you can read in a million ways. There are so many ways to read this table. I think I'm going to call this the periodic table. <laughs> that if you use your imagination, you can see yourself in there. I, I was a rather shy kid with a, a difficulty forming relationships. Um, and I sometimes compared myself to the inert gases. Inert gases are very isolated. They react with nothing. Because I, I felt they, they too had difficulties forming relationships. But um, I did... Uh he has now left the chair and has moved to the library and is taking out any hugely thick, actually a dangerously thick book. This is the Handbook of Physics and Chemistry. As you see, it says 5,000 pages. I had a smaller version as a boy, and um, from brooding in this book, it seemed to me just possible that one of the inert gases, xenon, might be seduced into combination by the most active element of all, which was fluorine. This lonely, lonely gas might find a partner somehow. Um, yeah. Did they ever get together? In fact, it came to me with great joy when I found out uh, in the 1960s that a, actually a Canadian chemist uh, had in fact made a fluoride of xenon. 
Elemental love. <laughs> and speaking of love, he then took us. I think let's come right. here. All one right. sec. Where are we going? Okay. To the living room. And he showed us a small painting. In the painting, there was this dramatic figure of a bearded, scowling character on the side of a mountain, holding two stone tablets over his head. And the sky was filled with lightning. And who was it? It was Dmitri Mendeleev. When I heard of how Mendeleev had um, discovered the periodic table, I imagined Mendeleev as a sort of Moses going up to a chemical cyanide and coming down with the tablets of the periodic law. And when I mentioned this fantasy to Peter Selgin, my friend, uh, uh, an artist, he did this imaginative picture of the young Mendeleev, the peaks of a chemical cyanide behind him, holding aloft the tablets of the periodic table. Which raises maybe the deepest question of all. Did Mendeleev think this up and impose it upon the world? Or was this pattern always there? In which case Mendeleev just removed the veil and said, oh, there you are. Is the periodic table a discovery or an invention? Is it a human construct or is it a revelation of the cosmic or divine order? Is it, so to speak, God's abacus? Radio Lab will continue in a moment. Message one. Radio Lab is funded in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the National Science Foundation. Radio Lab is produced by WNYC and distributed by National Public Radio. Radio Lab is supported by Betterment. Let's talk about you and your money. You like your free time, you like to relax every now and then, you like to feel totally chill, but your money, your money likes to work. And Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. While you're catching up on sleep, your money is up early, earning 11 times the national average in a high-yield cash account. Your money is a multitasker, diversified in expert-built portfolios of low-cost ETFs. And your money is optimized with automated tax-efficient strategies, just like the pros use. Your money is a total workhorse, so you don't have to be. Because you've got Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. I'm David Remnick, and each week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, my colleagues and I unpack what's happening in a very complicated world. You'll hear from the New Yorker's award-winning reporters and thinkers, Jelani Cobb on race and justice, Jill Lepore on American history, Vincent Cunningham and Gia Tolentino on culture, Bill McKibben on climate change, and many more. To get the context behind events in the news, listen to the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts.
Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. And I'm Robert Krilwich. This is Radio Lab. And we continue with our ongoing appreciation of the great Dmitry Mendeleev. Let's also get back to the question that Oliver Sacks asked about Dmitry Mendeleev before the break, which is... When a scientist looks out at the world and sees a pattern, is that the scientist's mind projected onto the chaos of the world? So is the discovery in the scientist, or... Is it out there in the world? Right. Meaning it just exists independent of us, doesn't care if we find it or not. Exactly. Is it a human construct, or is it a revelation of the cosmic or divine order? That's the question... And it can lead to some fairly, well, sad and riveting moments. This story comes to us from Alan Lightman, a theoretical physicist working out in Caltech once upon a time. Alan, when he was a scientist, he was working on a problem. A problem that had to deal with an astronomical object called a globular cluster, which is a collection of about a million stars. So he's got a glob of stars all orbiting each other. And the question he's asked is, how do they hang together? Tell me a little bit about the gravity that links them. And he, he thought he'd made a discovery that was brand new. So I was in the process of, of writing up the paper. I'd done the calculations. I was writing the paper. And I was in the library, as one often does, putting in the footnotes and the references. And one of the things that you do with the references is you cite other people who have done similar things. And ideally, you should do this before you start the problem. (laughs) So I was flipping through some of the most current journals, and I saw a title that looked alarmingly (laughs) like the title that my article would have been. I got this terrible pang of anxiety that went through me. So I opened up the journal, and these two guys from Japan had solved the same problem that I had, and I pulled out my notebook of results and started comparing my results against their results, and the numbers agreed to like three decimal places. So what they'd found was exactly what you had found. Well, they would have to find exactly what I'd found because this is the world of science, and the world of science has this terrible precision. I was uh, crestfallen. I was uh, so disappointed. I felt humiliated. I felt stupid. And then another sensation went through me, and that was a feeling of amazement that these two guys on the other side of the planet with no communication with me, sitting at their desks, worked on the same problem and had gotten the same results. The exact same results. You know, all of the philosophers like Bishop Barclay who said it's all in our mind, they're all wrong. Any scientist anywhere in the universe solving this problem would have gotten that answer There really is something outside of our bodies and independent of our minds. And this is both a wonderful thing and a terrible thing. It's it's a wonderful thing because there's a beauty to it. There's a feeling of power and control. But the tragedy of this, which I felt at the same time, is that what is the relevance of me as an individual person? If anybody else could have solved the same problem, then why was I needed? What is the meaning of my life? How do I leave my individuality on the world? 
certainly not through science. So here's what happened. Allen gave up the practice of bench science and became a novelist. Einstein's Dreams won the Pulitzer Prize. Great book. That's his work. It couldn't have happened without him. And that is a profound difference between the sciences and the arts. So if, if the ode to joy had not been in Beethoven's head, you don't think necessarily right. it would have come around. That's right. I, the Tempest is not going to have been written by anybody but Shakespeare. The Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde by Gino Diaz, which is the novel I just finished, is only going to have been written by him. So it's goodbye science. But let's, um, let's argue the other side for just a second. Okay. There's... Oops. <laughs> okay, I'm back. Um, there's an idea floating around that gives the scientist a little bit more of uh, a... I don't know, you'll probably like it. It comes from another physicist. Can you just introduce yourself? In case you forget who you're talking to. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm Paul Davies. I'm director of the Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science at Arizona State University. So Paul Davies starts with a basic question, which humans have been asking forever. Why are we here? If you think about it, it's totally crazily improbable that we are here asking these questions that... I don't know. 13.7 billion years ago. The universe is born in a shower of particles that somehow cool in just the right way to form atoms, which somehow gather in just the right way to form stars and galaxies and a planet with sunrises and sunsets and just the right atmosphere to give rise to a creature that can look at the sunrises and sunsets and say, wow. If the fundamental laws of physics or the initial conditions on the universe were only slightly different, then there would be no life and no observers, no one to say, wow. And the question is, is that a significant fact or just an incidental fact? A lot of scientists would say, well, it's a fluke that we're here, that we have a mind, that we ask these questions. And I think it's a big deal. We've been made privy to the fundamental nature of the universe, the rules on which the universe runs, its basic laws. If we're just an accident, why aren't we just here looking at the universe, surviving, but having no clue? And the only way I can make sense of it is to suppose that there is some sort of link between the laws of the universe and the emergence of of life and consciousness, that the existence of observers like ourselves is part of the explanatory story. In other words, says Paul, the fact that we're here understanding at least trying to how the universe works on some scientific level he thinks that's part of the grand scheme that somehow the universe the atoms in the universe need to be understood well the universe has engineered its its own self-awareness that the, the, the universe has thinking beings within it who can think wait, wait, observe, if you were to compare the thinking beings like on the one hand maybe you had Cezanne painting a p- portrait and on the other you had Einstein doing an equation. It sounds like if understanding is the key, as you just said, that this theory would put the scientists ahead. Well, it does. And, I, you know, I'm always wary about saying that uh, for fear of infuriating my uh, art, uh, art scholars. Me, for example. I'm from Cezanne. <laughs> um, uh, that's not to diminish the value of art and, and poetry, but this thing we call science is a, is a near miracle. I'm not using miracle in the religious sense, but the fact we can do it, I think, is stupendous. We're incredibly privileged. And I think there is some uh, bigger, I want to say agenda, but you have to be very careful with these words, but certainly a scheme. And that we judge that uh, scheme to be ingenious and beautiful. 
for reasons we know not. I love this idea mm. because it seems to me that if the Earth were to have a beautiful day and there was no one around who could reflect on all that beauty, then what is it? It's there, but unappreciated, it's not quite there enough. You know in the Bible, God creates a, a bit of the universe every day, mm -hmm. but at the end of each day, almost as a necessary function, God says, and it was good. He gives himself a grade. He gives himself a, a grade. So maybe this is just the atom's way of admiring itself. Because what is a scientist? It's just a bunch of atoms. Yeah, you know, it's a nice idea. But actually, in the end, I don't buy it. You know. No, because he's saying that the, the purpose of the universe is to create thinking beings like us to examine it. And the best examiners of them all are the physicists. Well, guess what? Here's a physicist. He is the very thing that he's sort of... It's a little Miss Piggy, I guess. Yeah, and I don't think anything that we've learned in science in the past couple of hundred years would lead us to believe we are at the center of anything. Well, I think most scientists in the world would agree with you. And, and one more thing. But I don't care. Just on the level of aesthetics, of beauty, uh, isn't it more beautiful to think that all of this is an accident? I hate that idea. Why? I hate... You Do think that... In, that all of this beauty coming into being by accident is better... Than it having some purpose? Yes. Because if it has a purpose, it means it's supposed to be here. And if it's supposed to be here, then it's just somehow a little less um, amazing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I just think you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, let's keep it moving. Yeah. If appreciating is the key, according to Paul Davies, well, in science... That is sometimes harder than it sounds because what if you're out there in the world, you're on the cusp of a major discovery, it's right there in front of your face, but you happen to be looking the other way. For example, take this story. So I'm very excited to hear about your journey, <laughs> but first tell me who you are. Okay, uh, I'm Erica Lloyd. I'm an editor and freelance writer. Testing. Looks like the mic is on. And Erica recently took a trip with a bunch of scientists. Everything is working very far away. Quite a ways. <laughs> Where exactly? Somewhere between Greenland and Siberia. And all you're seeing every day is just lots and lots of ice. Yeah. What's that What's that like? Well, the ice is really beautiful. July 5th, I'm on the deck overlooking the Arctic Ocean. I mean, it's just, one guy called it his cold campfire. Chilly here, it's, it's hovering around zero degrees. I mean, sometimes when the sun is up, and it's just sparkling like diamonds. When you look out, it's mesmerizing. You get how isolated you are. Warmer clothes? Warmer clothes. Yeah, man. Mittens. Maybe you can introduce yourself. I'm Rob Reeves Stone. I'm a scientist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. He's sort of the main guy of this expedition. We have extra shoes like this. Should I wear one? You're welcome to. So he raised the money. Yep, millions of dollars of government funding. So for him, career-wise, this is very important. This is it. When I was coming out of graduate school, I was trying to think, how was I going to make my mark in the scientific world? And, you know, the more mature a, a field gets, the harder it is to do something important. And sometimes in graduate school, it can feel like you're, you know, gnawing on bones <laughs> as, as a scientist. And um, the Gackle Ridge has been a little bit of a, you know, in a sense, it's, it's one of the final frontiers. Wow. That's the ship hitting the ice. So we're going to the Gackle Ridge. 
And what's so important about the Gackle Ridge? Well, it's one of the great unexplored places on the planet. Basically, it's an Arctic mountain range. Two or three hundred miles from the North Pole. At the bottom of the ocean. It's like two and a half or three miles deep. Making matters worse, in terms of getting there, is that the top of the ocean is covered in ice. Really, really thick, this ice. But the thought is if you could somehow get there, get underneath the ice, get all the way down to the bottom of the ocean, you'll find volcanoes. And, you know, where you have volcanoes, you might have hot springs. Where you have hot springs, you might have... Life. Just imagine. Black smoke. Really toxic. Billowing out of a chimney on the seafloor. Hot enough to melt lead. Jeez. With all manner of bizarre biological organisms making a little oasis around it. Like what kind of creatures were they expecting to see? Weird kinds of... I mean, everyone wanted to see a three-eyed tube worm. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Is there such a thing as a three-eyed tube worm? No, not yet. (laughs) But the point is that every time that they've seen these hot springs in different parts of the planet, they've found completely new things. Something like 600 previously unheard of species. Like really strange-looking shrimp. With eyes that had moved to their backs. And they have found tube worms. Big ones. They look sort of like plumes. They're very cool-looking, and they're big. They have these little flower caps. In any case, this spot that they're going to... Uh-huh. For various geological reasons that I don't really understand, it might be the most interesting one of all. But no one's ever seen it. <sighs> huh, it's too early in the morning. 3.20 a.m. I just woke up 10 minutes ago. Sun is up, of course. It took a few days to get to the first site. This, this is probably our current location. And this is a place where there was evidence of... These vents. So we thought, well, that's where we're going to start. Erica, how are they actually going to get through the ice to go down? Well, Rob reeves some, thinking, how am I ever going to get to the Gackle Ridge? I had a newborn a child. This is, I guess, 1996. I was giving her a bath, and of course, a whole layer of bath bubbles. I mean, you couldn't see the bottom of the bathtub. Then one of the toys that she had was a Sesame Street submarine. The Cookie Monster and Elmo as the captains and <laughs> all this kind of stuff. And we were playing around with it. So we dove the submarine under the layer of bubbles. Oh, wait a minute. The submarine's underneath the bubbles. If we could develop robots. Robots? That could go under the Arctic ice cap. To the seafloor. That would be a way to move beyond, you know, gnawing on bones and maybe bring down some big game. So finally, finally, they're going to put this thing in the water. You're the verge of history, man. Here we go. What the hell? I'm in this shack that's sitting on the deck. A nice small heated enclosure. And it's tiny. There's a, a couple of grad students, and uh, you know I'm, I'm hanging in there, just kind of squeezed into a corner. Everybody's got these big exposure suits on in case you fall into the water. Mm. Pretty quickly, it starts smelling like body odor and peanuts, you know. Because <laughs> <laughs> although people are doing laundry, you know, they're not washing their fleeces. How's the stress level? How's your stress level? And then they, they drop the robot in? Mm-hmm. Letting the baby go. No, it's like sending your child to preschool for the first time. So they're watching it go down deeper, 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 deeper. So it's going down, 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 and they can watch on the computer monitor. On the screen, what you're seeing is streams of data. So just just data, no pictures. Right. X, Y, Z, depth, time, blah, 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 blah. 30 meters down, coming up. They're dropping. This is taking hours. Hours? Diving about a meter every five seconds. So 12 meters per minute. 
vehicle is now at 187 meters. We're now at 220 meters. 373 meters. We're at what? 400 meters right now. Isn't this exciting? <laughs> well, read the problem. The problem is that nobody put any music on. I haven't got my iPod. You know, they start playing oh, music. Diva? It's Diva. Of course it's Diva. <laughs> Working in the coal mine. Ah! Going <laughs> down, down. Come on, come on, come on. Enough quality was good. Okay. Awesome. Yep, 641. Two LBL and right, 641. 641 meters. Yes. So that's the new record. That's the depth record for Navy in the Arctic. Why don't somebody go for, somebody go for breakfast? Yeah. I'll go in just a minute. I'm not going anywhere. I want to just think it's 1,000. So it's past the 1,000 meter mark and it's moved on. It makes its first mission goal 1,000 meters. Everything's looking great. It's moving on to its next goal, 2,500 meters. And then it aborts its mission. What? Oh! The vehicle aborted. Shit. The software died. Software bug. Software bug. Software? What's the matter with you? Can't you test the software before we come up here? So you're pissed off at this point. No, I wasn't because I knew how hard it was. Uh-huh. But I was so stressed out. So stressed out. I had a facial tick, tightness of my chest, labored breathing, eating my fingernails to my knuckles. You know, 10 years of, of effort. Millions of dollars. His entire scientific career. All of that's on the line. You know, people kept asking me, of course, you know, Erica, you know, had her, had her microphone there. How do you feel? <laughs> Trying to kind of get me to take this kind of introspective look on it. And I even tried. I like sat there, you know, one night after things had kind of died down and went on the front with the stars and said, okay, you know, feel the moment, dude. I can't feel the moment. We haven't had comms from the AUV for two and a half hours. You know, I got to get back down there. You only have so many days on station to do what you've been planning 10 years to do. And for it to abort. Yeah, you're burning the clock, you know, tick, 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 and you feel tick, it. Tick, tick, you feel tick, that. Tick, tick, tick. You can feel tick, the fuse. Tick, 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 tick. tick We're not tick, finding vents here. Tick, tick, the clock is ticking. Let's move on to this next site. We went through five time zones to get there. Took a week. Took a week? Yeah. So you're back just chugging through the ice for a week. Yep. Tick, 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 tick. And then... Whoa, that's, uh, I guess we're hitting some ice here. Everything's rocking. A really, really big ice flow moved in and ran us out of town. Meaning you were stuck? Yeah. In a big traffic jam of ice chunks? Exactly. There's absolutely nothing we can do. We're dick, just waiting dick, in the dick, ice, you dick, know, and just people are like, oh. Dick, 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 we didn't come up here to wait. Let's keep working. Let's make something happen. So the CTD team drops in their equipment because that's what they do, you know. If you're just sitting around anywhere, drop the equipment, right? You mean so they were just stuck there and they're like, ah, let's throw it over the side, see what happens. Right. And they found remarkable signals. Yeehaw. Much stronger signals than they'd found anywhere else. Oh, so they got lucky. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like interesting stuff everywhere is what it is kind of looking like. And this time, did the robot have a camera? Yeah. Ooh. They got all this video footage. Wonderful, wonderful high-definition video. Superb. You know, and we could watch from the ship. We're seeing it, you know, in the control van in real time. Is it going to be two berms? Is it going to be clams? Is it going to be mussels? Is it going to be snails? 
This is Phil Fort, one of the engineers. Oh, over the next rock mound, there is going to be, there is going to be the next smoker. There is going to be the next Cali field with clams and mussels and who knows what we're going to see. And? We go over this crater, the big rim, and then drop back down on the other side. And we found... These, like, fields. A whole hilltop. Fields just covered in this... this. It was so eerie. It was... It was. I haven't seen anything like that before. Yellow... Yellow... Fluffy, fluffy stuff. And it was really beautiful. Yellow fluffy stuff? Yeah. It was just everywhere. Floating around or where? On the seafloor. We were seeing ski slopes. Like cotton candy or something that might be growing in your yogurt. Whoa. What's that? Like there would be like a waterfall of it. or A, a waterfall? Wow. Like, like it would just be coming down rocks off, off of scarps. And wow. Kind of beautiful, but, but eerie. And it was really, really frustrating. What? There was a certain faction on the ship that was really disappointed, and they were really angry with me. But, but why? Because they felt I mean, that I just failed th- them. Really? Absolutely. In what way? That, you know, the combination of the AUVs and our technology and my leadership hadn't resulted in finding three-eyed tube worms. That's what we all wanted to see. Uh. Everyone wanted to see a three-eyed tube worm. Something really kind of spectacularly new and creepy and weird. And instead, the new stuff that we found was, you know, this yellow fluffy stuff. So the fluff was just like, whatever? Well, it was exciting because it meant, well, okay, Okay. what's going to eat this stuff? We're on the right trail. Right? There's got to be something eating this stuff. Nothing seemed to be eating it. No three-eyed two worms. And of course, all that is built on the supposition that there are three-eyed two worms there to find. Right. You know, the world is the world. The Arctic Ocean is the Arctic Ocean. It doesn't care what we want to see. What's there is there. So here's the interesting thing. Rob Reeves-Sones comes back all that way, thinking basically this trip that I've planned for the last 10 years was a bust. No vents, no tube worms, nothing cool and amazing, just this fluff, whatever it is. But then they get back and they look at it more closely and they realize, okay, this stuff is microbes, but... Not your run-of-the-mill microbes. These are some of the oldest known uh, living organisms on Earth. We were the first to see it. And what's funny is that, like, you didn't even know that until you got back. Mm -hmm. Like, you almost missed it. Yeah. Right. Are you going to be doing this again? Well, Any more trips? Well, uh, that's a good question. I mean, uh, I'm broke now. Uh, Money's all gone. Field program's over. I am, uh, you know, uh, free-falling a little bit, but... The three-eyed worm is still out there, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's still there for the taking. It's a mythic three-eyed worm. The unicorn of the Arctic. <laughs> Thanks to Rob Reeves-Sones and Erica Lloyd, and also before them, Caitlin Walkenfuss and the Brooklyn Tech Cheer Squad. Radiolab will continue in a moment. This is Christine Stone from Maplewood, New Jersey. Radiolab is supported in part by the National Science Foundation and by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www. 
www.sloan.org. Radiolab is supported by BetterHelp. Whether it's already 2 a.m. on a fun night out, graduation time, a new year, we can find ourselves wishing we had more time, wondering where it all went. But there's a question. If we were magically given that time back, what would we do with it? Perhaps you'd spend more time with a friend that you've lost touch with or petting your dog or just noticing the sweetness of doing nothing. The best way to let those special things into your life is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority going forward. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Radiolab today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Radiolab. Hello, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krilwich. This is Radiolab. And we're talking about how scientists think about the world. And appreciate. Yeah, except appreciation... This is something that scientists do differently from the rest of us. And I think this next story is an act of appreciation so different from the rest of us that it makes me want to... Barf. Gag. Bring it. Once upon a time, in a rainforest in Costa Rica in Central America, there was a little botfly. It's a botfly. Botflies are hairy flies that live in moist uh, tropical areas on Earth. So they're not like New York City flies. No, no, no. What, what a botfly does is when a botfly is pregnant, and our botfly was a pregnant female botfly, she has her baby, flies up into the air, carrying her baby. She sees a nice hairy mosquito. It grabs, actually grabs onto the mosquito. Mid-flight? Oh, yeah. And drops her baby onto the mosquito. Why? The mosquito, well, because the mosquito is going to do something very important for the baby. But the mosquito, of course, is a mosquito. So it's looking to bite somebody. Right. When the mosquito lands on a nice, warm, palpitating mammal so she can have some blood, the botfly baby is programmed to fall off into the mosquito bite and make a little home. Wow. That's impressive. Completely. Yeah. The mosquito probably has no idea of any of this. No idea at all. You got, you got all that? Got it. Okay. So now I want to introduce you to a particular palpitating mammal that happened to be in Costa Rica on our very day. I guess I was about 24. It was uh, 1973. Uh, his name is Jerry Coyne. 30-some years, I guess, 35 years. But I remember it like it was yesterday. <laughs> this isn't an experience that you forget easily. You so. were working at Harvard as a grad student at the time? Yeah, I was. I was doing a laboratory experiment on flies, ironically. And uh, <laughs> there was a program for Harvard graduate students to go to the tropics for two months during the summer so they could get some experience in the field and learn something about the diversity of tropical nature. So now we've got Jerry Coyne in Costa Rica walking through a forest. Doing some research or Doing something? Doing some research. And through the air, you hear the distant sound of a mosquito getting closer and closer and closer to it. Bites Jerry right on the head. Not too far from the crown. And, uh, and I scratched it. But, you know, it didn't go away. When it got to be about the size of a pea... I consulted one of my fellow students. This friend of his happened to be an entomologist. She climbed up onto a bunk bed. She looked in my head, pulled the hairs back, and she said, Oh my God, there's something moving in there. 
that's when I freaked out completely. I started running around the field station going, oh my God, oh my God. I mean, just physically running in circles. In his mosquito bite, there was a little hose or something protruding. Through the top of the mosquito bite, and it was sort of wiggling around. A breathing tube, like a little straw. I was really completely freaked out. I mean, I had a, a worm in my body. Nobody knew how to extract it. Why and couldn't you just grab onto the, to the periscope part and pull? Because... Like all marvels of evolution, the, the bot fly maggot has devices to keep you from pulling it out because it makes its living in your body. So it has a pair of hooks on the anal end, the other end, that are dug into your flesh. So if you try to pull the thing out, it just digs in and you'll break it in two. That is the thing you want to avoid because it can cause a serious infection. Oh, no, you don't want to do that. No, you don't. But what you could do, however, is you could try what they call the meat cure. Put a slab of meat over the wound, strap it to you. I would have to have strapped, for example, a, a stake to my head, which is not very practicable. <laughs> um, and then the worm thinks that, you know, the worm's breathing tube, which is the, through the mosquito bite, gets cut off and it's deprived of air. So it thinks that the stake is part of your flesh and it burrows up through the steak and when it comes out almost all the way you can just remove the steak with a worm in it what a clever idea yeah the idea of toiling in the tropical heat every day with a t-bone strapped to my head was not something that <laughs> i wanted to do meantime it's um it's causing problems this thing it was a terrible itch and from time to time it would like move or twitch and you'd feel this sort of sharp pain in your skull or you could feel it grinding up against there and when i went swimming or took a shower it would get sort of freaked out because its air hole would be cut off and then it would really go nuts you know make a lot of pain so so i tried to avoid getting my head underwater meanwhile the lump was getting bigger and bigger till it sort of got noticeable wait how does it what is it eating in order to get bigger and bigger well it's uh um Yes. Um, it's eating my muscles and tissue and my scalp. It's eating your flesh, then. Yeah, it is. Oh. It's turning human flesh into fly flesh. This fly, it's eating Jerry, so it's more and more... Well, it is Jerry. It is, and that's the part that made me like it. So Jerry, and the part of Jerry that is now the botfly, leave Costa Rica, and it's time to head back to Cambridge, Massachusetts, at Harvard University, where Jerry's the grad student. And, uh, you know, he has to check things out. So I went to the health clinic, and, you know, in about 10 minutes, there was 20 doctors around me. Nobody had ever seen anything <laughs> like this at Harvard. They were all curious and poking and prodding and looking at it and ooing and aahing, but, of course, none of them knew what to do about it. And I just decided, screw it, you know, I'm going to... I'm going to let it come out, make the best of it, you know, enjoy it as much as I could and, and marvel at it. I mean, when you really think about it, it is amazing that an animal can take human flesh and turn it using its own genes into a fly. I mean, and you have to marvel. This is so weird of you, actually. I mean, I don't think this, this behavior might seem weird to the layperson, but to a biologist, it's sort of absolutely normal to, you know, be very curious about something. You know, I make my living on flies. I work with fruit flies. I'm a geneticist, and, and here was a fly making its living on me. Hmm. You know, I was getting more and more curious. I wanted to see what it looked like when it came out. I didn't want to kill it. What about girls? I mean, assuming you're dating, so, like, yeah. wasn't this, like, a total turnoff to say, hi, this is me and my maggot? Well, I was, you know, I was dating a nurse at the time, and this is this is the good thing about it. The nurse was uh, actually quite fascinated with this. Uh, I thought it was disgusting. <laughs> Sarah Rogerson was Jerry's friend. She inspected the fly. Did you give it a name? No. <laughs> no. Jerry may have felt that way about it, but uh, no, I didn't. This was more of a scientific experience. This is something you were 
was okay with you? Well, I don't remember being informed that there were any other options. I thought, I thought this is just what had to happen. So a couple of weeks pass, and the botfly is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It goes from jelly bean size to something like the size of an egg. An egg? Yeah, it was pretty big. Like a quail egg. Whoa. He's covering it now with a baseball cap, which is maybe one reason why they decided to go to Fenway Park one particular evening. That is correct. Yeah, it's a Red Sox-Yankees game. I wasn't going to miss that. And uh, every once in a while, I would rub my head. I mean, throughout this whole gestation of this thing, just to check on it. And during the game, when I rubbed my head, I felt something coming out of the lump. Jerry kept saying, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, it's coming out, I can feel it. So was this a little distracting? Uh, yeah. A foul ball came up where we were sitting, and it hit, bam, in one of those wooden seats at Fenway, and we narrowly escaped getting hit, because we really weren't paying much attention to the game at all. But it took a long time. I mean, it, it was so there. It started at the game and then it went it on. It started at the game and then continued on until the evening. We went back to Jerry's apartment mm-hmm. and he kept reaching up and checking to feel the lump. We were just hanging out. It's and a little bit more risque than that. <laughs> and I said. He reached up and said, It's gone. The, it's, it's out. out. We got to find it. <laughs> so I turned on the light and there it was on the pillow and it was horrifying. What did it look like? Is it a wiggly little wormy thing? It's sort of bulbous on one end, and then it tapers down to a little tail. It's white. Big, fat, white grub worm. An inch and a half long. Wow! And it has little black teeth. You know, I thought, oh my God, this, that, that's what was in my head. Had I known that, I might have been more freaked out. When you are greeting your baby there, yeah. did you have a feeling of, of pride or just a... Well, no, extreme curiosity. Extreme. Um, the one thing that was extremely striking to me was that its it, its exit was completely painless. Hmm. Um, you know, it's painful when it's in there, but when it comes out, it does so very painlessly, and that's another evolutionary phenomenon. Of course, it's the, if the worm was did it painfully and exited, then the horse or the monkey or whoever it's infecting would just slap it and kill it. So what did you do once you had the baby there on the pillow? Well, then I decided I was going to try to rear it into an adult fly. You know, I'm I'm a scientist. Right? <laughs> That's what you do. So I I had prepared a jar of sterile sand. I took the worm and I dropped it into the sand and put the top on with air holes and hoped that um, it would pupate. But unfortunately, it died. Did you get sad? I was extremely sad. You know, in the temperate zone in Boston, a butterfly is not going to make it. It just can't live. And so it was doomed from the start. But I wanted to see it complete its life cycle. And unfortunately, it didn't quite make it. So I did the best I could with what I knew. You know, I, I think it's as it added some richness to my life. It really did. People still get completely horrified when I tell them the story, even though to me it's, you know, it's sort of a nice story. <laughs> Jerry Coyne works at the University of Chicago, and his forthcoming book is called Why Evolution is True. And we have time for one more story. A couple of years ago, I sat down with one of the great bug scientists, insect scientists in the world. His name is Tom Eisner. He teaches up at Cornell and has taught more scientists to love insects than anyone in the world, probably. And I guess I wondered, 
If you spent your whole life having feelings and very sophisticated feelings about tiny, almost alien life forms, how does that happen? We spoke at the 92nd Street Y in Manhattan. Your interest in insects, can you remember when it began? According to my parents, when I first stood on my feet. Really? All I cared about was bugs. Indeed. Beetles, caterpillars, ants, termites, cockroaches. I picked them up. I learned quickly not to put them all in my mouth. Uh, I kept them in my room. My room was a zoo. You were born in Berlin. Correct. From a Jewish family. Mm-hmm. You were what, about three years old when you left, or thereabouts? Three years old. I went to Spain. So you went from the Nazis in Berlin to Spain? Yes, and the Spanish Civil War fled for France. My parents decided we should really start somewhere else, and we went to South America. And that was an entomological paradise. Every living organism has some sort of odor. You can build these up in your memory. And uh, I used to take a whiff of that insect and classify them in my mind's eye according to what they smell like. Caterpillar, ant, beetle. (laughs) And do you ever dream of insects? Yeah, I I tend to dream that I am an insect. (laughs) What does that mean, that you dream that you are an insect? I mean, you scurrying and walking upside down on the ceilings? Indeed, even escaping swattings. The weirdest situation that I ever got into in a dream was I dreamed that I was an insect, and I was telling another insect that I occasionally dream that I'm a human. (laughs) That's your (laughs) meta-dream. Insects were somehow my great love. I was very much a loner, and uh, if I didn't have a room full of insects live, I was unhappy. No, Tom, I wanted to ask you. uh, At this moment, uh, Oliver Sacks, who was on the stage with us, he asked Tom this question. Whether you feel that insects respond to you, you know, whether whether you feel them sort of purring, and whether they... um, they know that you're gentle and reliable and for them. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. I don't, I don't presume to read responses on the part of the insects. But the older I get, the more difficult I find it to experiment with them. And there are ways that kill them. Um, bombardier beetles can live for one, two, up to three years in your lab. You become very attached to them. You give them names. And when they die, it's, it's an event. So you must somehow have moments where you feel that things are going on in that tiny little brain, that they have secrets hidden up their sleeves that uh, they might reveal if you found a common language. I find that I can love nature no matter how distant the individual organisms are from me. But I reach out and hope that I can shorten the distance and create some feeling of coexistence. Tom Eisner's book is called For the Love of Insects. That's really what it's called? Yeah. Well, we should go. Check our website, radiolab.org, for more information. And you can always send us an email at radiolab at wnyc.org. Radiolab is one word. Yes, it is. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krolwich. 
Thanks for listening. Message three. Hi, this is Jerry Coyne, the Botfly Man. Radio Lab is produced by Amanda Aronchik and Jad Abumrad. Our staff includes Lulu Miller, Soren Wheeler, Jonathan Mitchell, Ellen Horn, and Jessica Benko, none of whom are afflicted with botflies. Other help? Ike Shruskandaraza, Chi Chang Lin. Special thanks to Pauline Davies and Kate Edgar. End of message.